welcome to The Geek in Review, the podcast focused on innovative and creative ideas in the legal industry. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. Well, Marlene, you look a, a little healthier than you've looked the last couple of weeks, so it's good, good to yeah, have you back I was, on. Yeah, I was not doing too well last, last week. Uh, you know, I caught the dreaded COVID, but... Uh, first time but uh thankfully i mean it only was about a week and uh, uh and I'm, see I'm you back. thought you were you probably thought you were special right you're, i thought i was the cure i thought i was the cure i'm not apparently well we have a great uh, episode today we have a friend of ours damien real from fast case and sally is on with us so uh Marlene, I think I took your line, didn't I? You totally took my line. <laughs> but we, I would like to welcome you, Damien. Um, uh, Damien is the Vice President of Litigation Workflow and Analytics Content and part of the leadership at Sally. Damien, we're very excited to talk about Sally. We are we are longtime fans, and but we're also going to talk about legal tech, music, and more. Yeah, definitely more. <laughs> you know definitely. it's going to be a great podcast when you say and more. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this is one of those where we have a general outline and, and we're just going to see how the conversation goes. So, Damien, I wanted to start off first with talking about Sally. We've, we've talked with, about Sally standards before, but you're kind of the, you know, I, I think you're one of the, the biggest motivated people behind it and getting it out there and getting uh, a lot more content in on the back end with Sally. So would you just kind of give us a, an overview of what Sally is and some of the things that you've been working on lately. Sure. Uh, Marley, did you want to say something? Uh, I was, I I was going to, to echo that just like, you know, what's the, what's the basic concept behind Sally? I, I think a lot of people might not kind of fully understand sort of, you know, what's the purpose? I, I, I love that clarifying question. And so I think of Sally as a bunch of tags. So much like you go to Amazon and you see the left-hand view to be able to say, okay, I, I've run a search for, uh, you know, uh, sports jerseys, right? Uh, so now I've run a search and now in the filter, I want to say uh, in the filter on the left-hand side, there's tags for men's sports jerseys. There's tags for women's sports jerseys. There's tags for children's sports. Like each of those is something that Amazon used to tag up their products for, so you as a user are better able to filter and analyze those things. So think of Sally almost like that, where Sally is a bunch of tags, but instead of sports jerseys and men's clothing, women's clothing, you can instead say, uh, give me this area of law, patent law, and then give me this service. Am I giving advice for patent law? Or am I instead, uh, uh, should I get a uh, patent as advice? Uh, if I decide, yes, I'm going to get a patent, then I file it with the Patent and Trademark Office. That's the registration service. Uh, and then I maybe license the patent. That's the transactional service. That's a different tag. And then I litigate the patent. That's a dispute tag. Uh, and then I deal with patent assets in bankruptcy. That's the bankruptcy uh, service tag. So uh, you can imagine if I tag up all of my matters, um, then I'm able to say, okay, show me all the patent things that I've done, whether it's advice or litigation, et cetera. And then I can find the like with like, show me other times that we've done this matter. Similarly, we're also, for what industries are we doing this work? So my clients maybe an information industry that is the counterparties in the agriculture industry. You could tag up with the agriculture industry in that. Uh, and then you could be able to say, okay, what kind of documents have we done? Have we done merger agreements, motions to dismiss? Okay, that's another type of Sally tag. Wouldn't it be great to be able to catch all those? And then you could say within the document, is there a force majeure clause? We're tagging that up. Is this a breach of contract motion? Is this a negligence motion? Is this a uh, trade secret motion? We're tagging those things up. So we ha now have version two that came out in 2022, um, had 1,000, uh, no, I'm sorry, 10,000 matters. 
It's 10,000 tags of everything that matters to the substance of law and to the, uh, also the business of law. Uh, we have jumped now from 10,000. The newest version that we're building has about 13,000 tags. Um, so we just keep marching through to be able to essentially take everything that matters to the substance of law and to the business of law, uh, tagging, providing tags that then, once you've tagged them up, really the value proposition is Sally's now being adopted by Thomson Reuters. And Sally's being adopted by Lexus. I just had a meeting with Lexus today. Sally's being adopted by Bloomberg. Sally's being adopted by NetDocuments in a big way. Sally's being adopted by iManage. So you can imagine each of those 13,000 things uh, being standardized within each of those products. Uh, so an example, and of course, I, I should say my employer, yeah, I was Dr. Say, Mark Fastcase. This gives you a good uh, we, chance we, to, we even, to say that Fastcase is also doing it, right? <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So, so for example, today we've tagged up all of our 225 Sally motion types, motion to dismiss, motion for summary judgment, motion for 225 of those. Um, we've tagged each of those motions up with the Sally identifier for a motion to dismiss. So if you send me a docket alarm, the Sally tag, give me all the motions to dismiss in the Southern District of New York for breach of contract, um, we would be able to give you all of those back. Send that same API query to Thomson Reuters eventually, and they'll give you all of that back. Send that same API call to Lexus, and they'll give it back. Um, so this way, everyone is using the same identifiers for the same legal work. So when you're talking about Thomson and Lexus, when we're talking about integration, I'm assuming, into their, their products, are we talking about their information products? Or are we talking more about their financial products? Uh, so Thomson Reuters has said publicly, so I'm saying uh, only what Thomson Reuters has also said publicly, but Thomson Reuters has said publicly that they are integrating uh, Sally uh, for every single one of their products uh, across, so and they're just marching through. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I can't talk about the roadmap of the thing that they're building. I, 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 I know. You, you know the products. I la, can't say them. But what I can tell you is that uh, Legal Tracker is the first one that they've done. Uh, and so really the process for that is that Thomson Reuters and uh, Jim Hannigan uh, from Sally and I said, okay, let's say Legal Tracker had 500 different fields and tags uh, that they wanted to be able to map up. So we just did one by one. Uh, we mapped all of them. Uh, about 95% of what Legal Tracker had, Sally already had. Uh, and for that 5% that Sally did not yet have, uh, we pushed those into uh, into Sally. So now Sally has 100% of Legal Tracker. Also, importantly, Sally had a lot of things that Legal Tracker didn't yet have. And now uh, Legal Tracker pulled in some Sally things that hasn't uh, they didn't have before. So that's the kind of bi-directional uh, improvements that we do with Thompson Reuters. Uh, similarly, with NetDocuments is another one where they have said publicly at their NetDocuments conference uh, in Denver, uh, which I was able to be a part of, they uh, have said that uh, step one for them is I, as a user, could be able to tag up my motion to dismiss, breach of contract, negligence, or my merger agreement that has a force majeure clause. I could do that manually as step one. But soon after that, this year, they plan to say, hey, your document is a motion to dismiss for breach of contract and also has a negligence claim in there. Do you want me to tag those things up programmatically? And the user could say, yes, please. Hmm. Uh, so this is a way to be able to essentially tag up all of your documents, tag up all of your matters tag up your everything, because once then you tag them up, you can analyze them. How much does a motion to dismiss in the Southern District of New York for breach of contract cost? Once you have those tags, you're able to do that work. And what's interesting is like, because it's across the board in different organizations, and th that one of the early arguments in, in favor of Sally was that, okay, this was across the board. Okay, everybody was using the same standard. And so you could compare apples to apples. And this, it sounds like there's an oper there's a real opportunity to get this into firms in order to really make that happen. 
That's exactly right. And uh, even so uh, within firms, uh, the problem that we're solving for vendors like Thompson Reuters, uh, Thompson Reuters, the person we're working with, his name is Corey. Corey's boss said, hey, Corey, we have 30 products that don't talk very well to each other. You need to make them talk to each other. Um, Corey said, gosh, uh, I'm an engineer. Uh, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, building a taxonomy for the law is really hard. And then he said, oh, wait, Sally's already built it. And it's actually really good. So what he's using is Sally is to be able to have all 30 of his products talk to each other. And the side benefit of that is then the API calls uh, that, you know, he can open that up to law firms. Uh, so then say, if you want to hit any of those 30 products, then you're able to use the Sally API query and then be able to hit any of them. Uh, and of course, DocAlarm, the same idea. If you hit us with an API call that is Sally, we're able to do that. So Thompson Reuters uh, is using it as a universal translator, uh, both amongst uh, their internal uh, products as well as external products. And then, of course, uh, as a law firms, we're also solving a problem for vendors like us that each individual law firm might have their own bespoke taxonomy that has their crazy, you know, uh, areas of law that nobody's ever heard of before. <laughs> um, so I, as a vendor, it's a lot of work for me to connect with a thousand of my mappings to theirs. Wouldn't it be better if I, as a, as a vendor, say, hey, law firm, use Sally. And then you're out of the box, you're compatible with us. So that's the, really the grand idea. I can almost guarantee if a law firm has a taxonomy, it's a bespoke taxonomy. It's... Yeah, well, it depends. <laughs> it's sometimes it's client by client. and and But if oh. you can basically sync those using your, your existing products, that makes it a lot easier. That's right. Uh, and so uh, one of the work, Intap is doing a lot of really important work with this. And what they're doing is... They're trying to solve the problem that I just described. They're working with you know hundreds or thousands of law firms that each have their bespoke taxonomy. So they've built a really cool uh, parser to be able to see what a law firm calls an area of law. So for example, they went through some of the largest law firms in the country uh, and they scraped uh, from the website all of the areas of law that they have in marketing. One of those areas of law is appeals to the PTAB, okay? Um, and they call that an area of law. But then uh, the, the system that they built is to be able to extract that that is not an area of law. The area of law is patent law because it's the patent trial and appeal board. Uh, so that's uh, the area of law is patent law. The service that is being provided is the appellate litigation service. So that's the appellate is the service that's tag number two. And tag number three is that the PTAB is actually a forum. It is not an area of law. The PTAB is a forum. So what this Intap tool is uh, doing, and we're building it uh, internally at this point, some point we're going to uh, release it to the world, is you can input maybe 100 or 1,000 rows of what you call a thing, your bespoke taxonomy, your appeals to the PTAB, and then it will translate that to the Sally tags. Because you can imagine um, appeals to the PTAB as a single tag isn't nearly as useful as the three tags of show me all the patent law things that we've done. Okay, now show me all the appellate things that we've done. Okay, now show me all the PTAP things that we've done. Um, each of those as a individual is much more valuable than the lumped Frankenstein that is appeals to the PTAP. So at any rate, so that's, uh, that's all a way of saying that even uh, if uh, the Frankenstein monster that is your law firm taxonomy, even if on the front end, the lawyer still says, nope, I want to see appeals to the PTAP as a thing. Cool. Give them a button that says appeals to the PTAP, but then on the back end, tag it up with patent law plus appeals plus PTAP. Uh, so that's the best of both worlds. Yeah, I think uh, one of the thing that when you talk, Sally, especially to someone that just hears, you know, standards, oh, great, you know, there, here's one more layer of work that, that we're going to have to do. And and we've learned from our uh, iManage or, our, you know, our document management systems that when you kind of make the person, uh, the attorney or, or the secretary or assistant, tag that, it tends to either go in general 
or we laugh and it's like if if it's tagged to a country afghanistan uh tends to get a lot because it's first on the list so and we're going to talk a little bit more later about some of the ai tools that are that are hitting the market but and i know you've you've hit some of this with the way that some of the third parties are going to kind of automate the system is that how people like us should approach the powers that be at our firm when we talk about standards because i i think to them they just see it as oh god you know we're gonna have to hire a boatload of people to come in and look at everything and tag it and we'll just do without it so is is automation and are, are there other things that are going to be the way that these types of standards get implemented at the local level Oh, 100%. Yeah. So I would say that if humans are doing uh, most of this, uh, then this, the organization is doing it wrong. That is, a lot of this is automatable in the ways that I described earlier to say uh, you could input a thousand rows and output the Sally tags that uh, go to that thousand rows. That's example number one. Example number two is actually within Docket Alarm. Uh, we have a, a pleading tag where we look at a docket and it says um, order granting motion for summary judgment. Uh, we recognize order as a Sally tag. We recognize granting as a thing that happens, a disposition, and then we uh, recognize summary judgment as a, ple a pleading within the Sally side. So each of those things, we use zero humans for that. We just programmatically extracted that order is a thing, granting is a thing, and summary judgment is a thing. Uh, so it's 100% uh, machines, and it's just a matter of uh, vendors like DocketAlarm, vendors like NetDocuments, vendors like Intap essentially building the tools to make the firm's lives easier. Because we and the vendor side can build a scale. Uh, so for example, we can build, uh, we at DocterLarm have built that extraction, order granting summary judgment. Uh, the precision of that, you think about accuracy, precision. Our precision is 99.6% precise. We think humans are about 96 or so, maybe 97% precise. So our machine is better in accuracy at extracting these things than humans are. Um, so all that's to say that how many ways are there for to express the word summary judgment? I would argue one, summary judgment, right? Do you have to have some fancy GPT uh, or any other uh, large language model to be able to extract the word summary judgment from your uh, document, uh, from anything? Right. And the answer is no. Summary judgment is summary judgment. Negligence is negligence. Um, so really, um, of the Sally tags, um, almost all of them are verbatim. Sometimes there's things like motions to dismiss, which in California are called demurs, right? Uh, so in within Sally, we have motion to dismiss as a tag, and we have a synonym of motion to dismiss is demurrer. So the system can pull these things in. So all that's to say that if humans are tagging these things up, you're probably doing it wrong. Uh, rely on a vendor and encourage your vendors to use Sally and to be able to pull the Sally tags out. And even if you don't use a vendor to do this, uh, there are easy ways for the machines to be able to extract things uh, at a high precision and high recall. Well, how granular can the Sally tags be? In other words, I, I assume time entry, I assume documents. What other kind of day-to-day -day task or information that lawyers deal with can Sally help organize? A, a great example of this is the UTBMS, uh, also known as the ABA task codes. Uh, that is the bane of every mm -hmm. litigator's existence, including me. I was a litigator for 15 years. And so when I was entering, I took a deposition, so I put in my time entry, deposition. Ostensibly, that's to figure out how much a deposition cost. But I, as a litigator, know, well, am I taking the deposition or am I defending the deposition? Because that's going to be, or am I merely observing the deposition? Those are three different cost points. And then is it a fact witness or is it an expert witness? Or is it a 30B6 corporate witness? 
Uh, each of those is going to move the needle as to more expensive or less expensive. And then is it a patent litigation or is it a slip and fall? Because that's going to move the needle. And then is it in New York or is it in, uh, is it in Podunk Nowheresville? All of those things will really tell you things that the ABA task code that is deposition will not tell you. Each of those tags that I've just described is a Sally tag. We say, are you taking the deposition? Are you defending the deposition? Are you merely observing the deposition? Is it a fact witness? Is it an expert witness? Is it a 30B6 corporate witness? And so you can imagine on a time entry, you could say, took deposition of expert so-and-so. Um, took deposition expert. Cool. I'm going to tag up those three things. Um, that is very granular. And now if I know that this is a patent matter that's venued in the Southern District of New York, all of a sudden I have much more granular data points that I didn't have with the ABA task code that just said deposition. So I was curious, how are firms and maybe, you know, counsel, in-house counsel sort of using the Sally codes? I mean, pricing, staffing, maybe business development. What are some ways that, that you're seeing, you know, creative ways that you're seeing them, them being used? A good example of Jason Barnwell from Microsoft. Uh, Jason is, uh, is smart in many ways, as the, your listeners know. He's solving a particular business problem where two of his business units are being regulated by various regulators, say the FTC or the FCC. We have tags for FTC, for FCC, et cetera. Uh, so his business units are tracking regulators. And then the second column of things that they're tracking is the regulations, the Federal Trade Act, et cetera. Uh, and so he's using Sally to be able to tag up all of the regulators and the regulations and be able to tag them up using Sally. And then he's going to be requiring all of his law firms that work with them on those regulatory matters uh, to also tag up their matters uh, using the FTC Sally tag, the FCC Sally tag, et cetera. So that way, as they bi-directionally communicate, uh, they're able to use Sally as a translator between the firm system and the, and the Microsoft system. So that's just one example of how uh, this is helping a client, Microsoft, communicate with t their law firms. And then you can imagine if uh, some of the documents that they're creating is in net documents or in iManage, then iManage essentially tagging up FTC and FCC in the same way. And so this is kind of the tri-directional uh, client plus law firm plus vendor where everyone is using the same tag for FCC. Therefore, you could be able to push and pull data to and from each other. Has it impacted at all, like time entry, like how people, I mean, not not necessarily the tags, but like how people are actually writing their time? It's a, it's a good question. And uh, when I worked for Thomson Reuters, I can't talk much about the work that I did for them, uh, but I can say you can imagine that there's two ways to be able to create time entries. That is, I as a lawyer type uh, time entry. Uh, that's way number one. Way number two is that the system writes the time entry for you. It knows what you're doing. It sees that the I manage is a motion to dismiss for breach of contract in the Southern District of New York. And that could maybe populate a time entry, right? Uh, so anyway, so really, what is a time entry but Sally tags uh, embodied in a narrative text, right? Uh, so one could imagine that uh, are we going to have narrative time entries where a human is actually writing things? Or are we going to have extracting the tags uh, from iManage or extracting the tags from you know the work that you do? And is the tag the thing that you care about less than the narrative side? So anyway, so all that's to say, that am I changing my the way that I write the, my text to be able to help Sally? Maybe, uh, or maybe uh, maybe the systems you're creating in the future, maybe near near future, will essentially export the Sally tags of the things you're working on. Well, I know man, many people if they didn't have to actually do their time entry and it would just be kind of done for them, would be super happy. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's they'll, true. They'll never and be totally some, you know, happy. Then, though. That's <laughs> true. Uh, as long as the bill of the hour reigns supreme, uh, I guess happiness will elude us. So 
uh, Damien, we wanted to shift to um, sort of the the AI portion of the conversation now, if you don't mind. And we had Tony Tai and uh, Ashley Carlisle from Hyperdraft on a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking again about, you know, and this was sort of right when it kind of broke. And we didn't have quite as many examples where suddenly it's like, oh, it's only information from 2021 and it cuts off and, oh, you know, we're finding all of these mistakes and things like that. So, you know, they were also kind of cautioning about about some of this generative AI. And, you know, I'm wondering sort of what your take is on, you know, some of these, you know, shiny new tools um, that are going to, that are entering sort of this day-to-day discussion. I think that... Uh, the GPT in particular and large language models in general, like BERT, uh, on, the, on the Google side, BERT is also using Lambda. So uh, I'm going to use large language models or LLMs as a shorthand for GPT-like things. So I would say large language models are really transformative in a way that uh, I, as a skeptic of this is going to transform the industry, I hate when people say that. Um, but now I find myself saying that on the three on this uh, particular podcast because um, I, uh, I distinctly remember in uh, late November, early December, sitting at my kitchen table, and my wife will attest that I said lots of expletives and said, this is going to change everything. Uh, and uh, I've now tempered down my enthusiasm uh, for this not going to change everything, but it will change a lot of things. And so some of the ways that I think it will help is large language models, yes, they are generative AI. That is, that is uh, I want to create a text, write me a poem, right? write me a short story. The problem is they're also hallucinatory, as has been probably demonstrated lots, that sometimes they speak the truth, sometimes they don't speak the truth. There's a, you know, a, a know-it-all, uh, sometimes right, sometimes wrong, but always certain, <laughs> right? Uh, so so the GPT is really, you know, sometimes right, sometimes wrong, but always certain. Um, so anyway, so that's the generative AI side of it. But there's also a generative extractive AI. So uh, as, a, as a Gen Xer, I call that a Gen X. <laughs> so, so what that is, is, for example, here's a paragraph of text. Um, extract, uh, summarize that paragraph of text. Uh, so that's generative extractive. Here is a bunch of arguments. Here are a bunch of arguments. Create counter arguments from those arguments. So that's extracting the arguments and generating counter arguments. Uh, create a decision tree as to whether I should do this thing or that thing. Then it generates a decision tree. Um, classify, given this text, here's uh, three paragraphs or here's 100 pages. Uh, classify all the causes of action in that text, maybe with Sally tags, and then it outputs that classification. Create bullet points uh, that is summarizing the most important aspects of this four paragraphs that I give you right now. So anyway, all of these things are not generative AI. They're not write me a poem. They're not give me a brief, right? But they're saying, given these three paragraphs or these five pages, extract stuff that matters, and then generate useful things that comes out of it. So I think that the most transformative aspect of it is not the generative side, but what I'm now calling the Gen X side of it, the generative extractive side. More extractive generative, I guess, is the X gen, but it's not nearly as fun as saying Gen X. <laughs> uh, but I, I would say that the, the generative extractive is the most promising because it's really, even today, it's really, really good at that. Uh, and so that's, for example, what we're doing right now at Doctalarm. Just yesterday, we released something that said, uh, if I, as a user, uh, hover over a Doctalarm document, and uh, I maybe I maybe I want to click on it, maybe I don't want to click on it. I could now go to my GPT summary, and what it does is I click that button, and it runs that through GPT and gives you the three bullet points as to what that document is about. So now I don't have to read this 50-page document if I don't want to, or this 10-page document even. Now I can read three bullet points to see if I actually want to read this document. 
So this is an example of this generative extractive concept where it's extracting the document, giving a really good summary, and that is in a useful way. Um, no one is going to accuse that of robot lawyering, uh, and it's not nearly as sexy as saying, I'm going to represent you in court, but it's really useful <laughs> and it's really accurate. Uh, and so that's the, I, I think that what is transformative is the more even-tempered, I, given this, uh, this text, give me the stuff that matters out of it. Now, I know you did a test on, and I think you posted it on Twitter and wrote an article, a quick article about it uh, this week, and where you did that, where you gave it certain issues, you and then you fed it in, in, in more information and then said, all right, now that we have this, come back with X, and, and it was just a process uh, that you did. I'm, I'm curious... Um, did you have any naysayers uh, attack you on Twitter yesterday when when you posted it? I would say no, uh, largely because uh, I would like to think it's because my logic is unassailable, <laughs> uh, but that's probably not true. Uh, but I, I would say that uh, that really, if we think about humans are really good summarizers, we have really good AI between our ears, right? And so um, the, the pr example that I gave in the LinkedIn is essentially using the AI of humans. That is, I as a human want to summarize this 50-page document and so I summarize it in a way that's human readable that is called the table of contents. Uh, and so the use case that I used that I showed in LinkedIn is I gave GPT a table of contents appropriately for the open AI lawsuit that's going on right now. Open AI is being sued by a bunch of coders and the, um, they're being sued over uh, GitHub uh, Copilot, which ingested the entirety of GitHub, figured out how code works. And now I, as a coder using GitHub, can be able to essentially output uh, code by saying, hey, write, write me a website code that extracts, uh, you know, that uh, scrapes content from this website, and it'll generate that code programmatically. The way that it can do that is because it's already ingested the entirety of uh, GitHub to figure out how code works. So GitHub is being sued right now, saying that uh, the coders said, hey, we released this as a license. You breached that license. Uh, therefore, uh, now you're not you're not supposed to be able to ingest the GitHub. Uh, so that's what the lawsuit is. Uh, so I used that lawsuit table of contents for the motion to dismiss from OpenAI, where I ingested the arguments from the table of contents, and I said, okay, ChatGPT, create counter arguments based on the arguments, and the, take these arguments in the table of contents and create counter arguments from those table of contents. And then it created counter arguments. Uh, to be able to say, and it gave me really good ones. So the irony is that I was using OpenAI's GPT uh, to argue against OpenAI's <laughs> litigation of GPT uh, and uh, essentially using the tech that they're being sued over. So there's there's a fun irony there. Um, then on top of that, so that's really cool that you created the arguments that are condensed. And you know, the cool AI is that we that brief writer wrote 50 pages uh, worth of content and then said, wow, 50 pages is hard to grok. I'm going to summarize that in the table of contents, right? Uh, and so essentially we're using the human AI, which is now I'm going to condense 50 pages into a page. Uh, and now we're taking a robot and saying, okay, now take this human condensed table of contents and write counter arguments based on that human condensed uh, condensation. So then the counter arguments turned out to be really good. And then I took it a step farther and said, okay, for each of those counter arguments, provide facts that could be used to demonstrate each of those counter arguments. And OpenAI gave really good facts. Uh, that I, as a lawyer, could, if this gets past summary judgment, use in my depositions, use in my document requests, use in my uh, any type of legal proceeding to be able to essentially brainstorm. Uh, this is not robot lawyering, but it is a useful thing that uh, how long would it take a 
first-year associate to write counter-arguments to a motion to dismiss? How long would it take a first-year associate to be able to figure out facts to be able to extract, to be able to point to, to show how those counter-arguments are wrong? A while, right? But it took me less than a minute to do this. When you say facts, you're talking about a, a, a factual scenario, not necessarily that it's going out and giving you facts of this particular situation, right? And that's exactly right. Because I think that's where it tends to fall down is when you ask it to give you specifics. That's right. Give me give me uh, factual scenarios, I think is the is okay. the is what I had asked her for. So not not things that have happened, but things that could happen. Uh, and of course, that's, you know, uh, those are things that I ask my clients. Hey, has this thing happened? Okay. Number two, has that thing happened? Okay. Number three, has this thing happened? So this is ways that I can explore with my clients to brainstorm with them as to scenarios. And those, all of those are really good uh, on the output side. So um, my eldest son and I had a discussion about um, this the other day. And, uh, you know, right after this, this all broke, maybe, I don't know, a week later, there was a student that basically came out and said, okay, if you write a paper using um, chat GPT, like this, this, this thing that I built can tell you whether or not you did it or not. And of course, my son was very upset about this because it's like, why is he ruining it for everybody? And <laughs> he's in college, I don't understand. And, and I said, well, you know, that's one way of looking at it. I said, but you have to learn how to write. You have to learn how to craft an argument. You have to understand how concepts go together and how to sort of move from, from, from idea to idea before you can sort of use these shortcuts. And I want to go back to sort of what you were saying about, hey, you know, it would be a lot, take a lot longer for an associate to do this work, but what are we doing by essentially cutting out that opportunity for them to learn in that way? That is really the question my, that I've been talking about with my wife, who is a professor of English. Uh, so she's been teaching composition uh, for uh, now 25 years. Uh, and so she input a bunch of the queries to say, write um, a comparison of the bluest eye uh, and the color purple. Com take two characters in their experience and talk about their experiences with race and how they both are similar and dissimilar. We wrote that prompt into ChatGPT, and the output was like A minus work, uh, and that's with zero work, right? So then, uh, so she kind of had this existential question, like, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> what have I been doing if a machine uh, can essentially output pretty good stuff? And so I, I think of it a lot like, you know, we teach people uh, how to be able to multiply and subtract and add, right? Uh, those are things calculators can do. So there is the idea that the knowing the what is behind the calculator is important because you want to know the con concepts. Uh, but mostly you're teaching them by doing that how to think, that how to think and ideas. Uh, once you get to a certain point, you give people calculators and say, okay, now that we have uh, that foundation, let's jump faster, stronger, better. Um, so applied then to English and to ideas and lawyering, um, we now have this tool that gives us a really good head start. And so our jobs now as humans, uh, maybe we can use that as a way to leapfrog, much like a calculator is leapfrogging. And now I can use my critical thinking skills, number one, to be able to say, is what I'm seeing accurate? That is, I'm not going to accept at face value what it comes in. I'm going to use critical thinking skills to be able to assess whether it's accurate or not. That's thing number one. Thing number two, what is it missing? What are the things that are not showing up here? Uh, and then number three, how can I add to those things? Um, so using it like a calculator to be able to say, all right, now I'm going to use this as a first step uh, that now I can go faster, better, stronger. So an example uh, from the LinkedIn post that, uh, that Greg mentioned, for this factual claim, OpenAI's actions were the direct cause of plaintiff's injuries. I said, now provide factual examples of how a large language model training on text 
would cause an author of that training text to lose money. That was my prompt. I, it gave four examples. I'll only go through one of those with you. The example that it output said that OpenAI used an author's copyrighted work as training data for its large language model without obtaining permission from the author. As a result, the author lost potential revenue from licensing their work to other companies for similar uses. That's a really, really good answer. That is essentially uh, hurting OpenAI's case, right? So now I, as a brief writer, could be able to say, yeah, what, what OpenAI said, <laughs> right? Let's, I, I can essentially mimic that, or maybe I could say, you know, I gave four examples. I can use that as a jumping off point to say, oh, now that made me think of example five and example six, right? It's getting me to maybe the same place I would have ended up, maybe farther, but we won't tell anybody. Uh, but really the, the idea is that uh, this is a way to be able to spur thinking and to create new ideas where maybe a writer's block or a blank page might have kept us from those, keep making those new ideas without it. Damien, that really kind of gives me almost two, two things I want to think about on this, and that is, you know, never underestimate the uh, the bar association coming in and uh, <laughs> you know shutting this down, um, and then two, you mentioned uh, earlier about uh, issues of copyright and things like that. So let uh, let me jump into the copyright part of it. Um, and I know that, that uh, this is a, an area of expertise for you as well. So, you know, let's, let's talk about that. You yourself are known for challenging the, the rules for, uh, for copyright. And, and in fact, uh, you have a TED Talk where you, you talk about generating, uh, you know, what, some billions of, uh, of uh, musical... Uh, connotations that put on a desk in the and they're onto a hard drive and thus have copyrighted that by doing so. What are agencies like the U.S. Copyright Office? What kind of rules are they going to establish? Are they going to be able to kind of look into the black box of all of these large language models and determine are you taking copyrighted material and using that without getting a license? What's going to be some of the issues that we're going to see? And I, I think we're going to see relatively quickly. Uh, so two aspects, uh, actually a bunch of aspects from what you just asked. I'll, I'll take you to one in All turn. Right. So there's the the generative aspect, aspect of it. Uh, that is, if, if machine created, is it copyrightable? So this has currently been before the Thaler uh, case, where the uh, Thaler uh, had AI-generated art, tried to file it with the Copyright Office, saying, I'm not the author, the, art, the robot is the author. Uh, therefore, grant me registration. The Copyright Office says, no, uh, machines cannot receive copyright uh, because IP is a constitutional concept saying for limited times to advance the progress of the useful arts and sciences, uh, you shall have limited times of monopoly, essentially, is what they're saying. So, um, so that is incentives for humans to make new things. Machines don't need incentives. Machines, uh, for the example of my All the Music project, I hit a button and it spit out at a rate of 300,000 melodies per second uh, we're now up to about 417 billion melodies uh, that are written to disk. Uh, under the Berne Convention, once written to disk, they are copyrighted automatically. Um, so the question is, now that I have 417 billion melodies written to disk, which ostensibly includes every melody that's ever been and every melody that ever can be, mathematically, I've exhausted the entire data set, is that now copyrightable? To be able to uh, keep this from using being used nefariously, uh, what I did then was to put everything in the public domain under Creative Commons Zero. And the idea is to be able to say, argument number one, maybe each of these melodies that the computer cranked out at 300,000 melodies per second, maybe that's not copyrightable. 
Uh, and so that may be unoriginal, uh, therefore uncopyrightable. That's the primary argument. So the same way, maybe the output of GPT is similarly uncopyrightable because uh, machines do not need uh, incentives to be able to create things. And really, if you think about what copyright is, really copyright is the right to exclude somebody else from doing a thing. So really, if I were to copyright my 417 billion melodies, I could say, now nobody else can use those. I get life of the author plus 70 years, or I, in the case of a, an uh, institutional author, 120 years. So now those are locked up for 120 years, or GPT's creation is locked up for 120 years. That's just crazy talk, right? So anyway, that, that's all, all a way of saying that I think on the output side, is the output of LLMs and is the output of a machine, uh, is that copyrightable? I think the only sane way to come out is no, uh, because otherwise humans won't be able to build anything because the robots will cover the entire uh, waterfront. So that's on the output side. Now on the input side, if GPT ingests the entirety of the web or GPT ingests the entirety of Wikipedia, which it has, um, each of those things is copyrightable. If you make a website, that is copyrighted, right? Uh, books from Google Scholar are copyrighted. So anyway, so the argument that the uh, OpenAI case that the coders were making are, hey, I made code, my code is copyrightable, you ingested that code, uh, therefore you're violating my copyright. But that's actually not what they're arguing in the OpenAI case. They're not arguing copyright infringement because there's a bad case for them. <laughs> and that bad case is the Authors Guild. Uh, the Author Guild in the Second Circuit uh, concerned Google Books, where Google Books essentially scanned every book in existence. And the Authors Guild sued them saying, hey, these are copyrighted, you can't do it. And the court said, yeah, it was a copy technically, but it's fair use because the use of that book was transformative because what Google was doing was creating an index of every book ever written and then feeding back, I as a user could run a query and then get a snippet of that book and doing it back. And the Google Books court said, uh, yes, even though you ingested every book, that snippet you provided uh, is a transformative use, therefore fair use, therefore non-infringing. So if creating, and in Google Books' case, they sometimes provide three or four pages of full text of the book. If that is fair use, then how about the GitHub, where they're not reproducing three or four pages? If you know how large language models work, they're extracting the idea of a website. They're extracting the idea of scraping. They're extracting the code for each of those ideas, and then they're combining it in vector space and outputting a brand new thing that hasn't been done before, but is merely taking the information in the world and transforming it into a new generative thing. So if Google Books is transformative, this other thing is certainly transformative. So that's why they're not hanging their hat on copyright infringement, but instead what they're saying is, oh, we have a license, that the MIT license or whatever license that they use for GitHub, and they're saying you breached the license to do that. So they're trying to essentially, they want to have a copyright-like protection, but they're using a license to be able to try to enforce that copyright-like protection because Google Books is a bad case for them. But then, of course, the, the, uh, the response to that is, okay, if I have a book and you have a, a seal on the book and saying by breaking the seal on the book, you contractually agree that you will not be a Google Book to scan my thing. Of course, you can't have a license to keep you from doing something you're otherwise legally able to do. That's just ridiculous. So essentially, uh, that's why I think that the OpenAI case is probably going to lose, or at least should lose, if the court is doing it right. Uh, because all the machine is doing is what humans do all the time. I read a bunch of books. I assimilate those ideas from the books into a new expression of those ideas in my works. Um, so that's all the machine is doing in the uh, large language models. They're ingesting copyrighted things. 
figuring out the ideas and how language works, and then creating new things just like humans would. You know, we're talking a lot about lawsuits and a lot of discussion as to, you know, what is right and what is wrong. So, of course, we're going to be talking about regulation because, you know, that's not far down the road. Any ideas on, you know, how regulatory agencies are going to try and limit or expand or control these tools? So I would say uh, for a tool is a tool. So a hammer is a hammer. I can use it to build houses. I can also use it to hit somebody over the head with, right? Uh, one tool is useful, uh, another is criminal, right? So really, GPT, large language models like BERT, uh, these are tools. Uh, so how do you use them is the real question. So is a hammer illegal? Well, it depends on how you use it, right? Is GPT the unauthorized practice of law? Depends on how you use it, right? Uh, so I, I would say that um, if you're a regulatory agency, think about another profession that was threatened by technology. So think back to the early 1980s. Uh, think about CPAs, what they did for a living. Uh, what CPAs did was have ledgers and books, and they added numbers together, and they figured out uh, you know, what a profit and loss statement would be. All of a sudden, a thing came by that was called a spreadsheet. All of a sudden, all of these accountants are thinking, gosh, where's our jobs going to go? Right? That's all we do all day is just add numbers together, and all of a sudden, in a millisecond, this thing comes out. Imagine if the regulatory agency creating for accountants had said, hey, we need to kill this thing in the embassy because <laughs> otherwise we won't, have any, we won't have any more jobs, right? Uh, hey, let's maybe we'd out have something better than Excel if they did that. <laughs> maybe, but, Lotus but one, two, what three. the accountants found out. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, right. That's right, Lotus One Two Three. Exactly. I'm old enough to remember that too. Uh, but really, what happened is the opposite happened because the accountants realized that once the clients figured out that it wasn't going to take a week to get their numbers back, but it would take a day to get their numbers back, they'd say, "Hey, accountant, how about you run these numbers with this scenario? Cool. How about this scenario? How about this scenario? How could I do tax uh, to this?" And they realize it's actually more work. And we have way more accountants today than we ever have, largely because of the spreadsheet. So if you're a regulatory agent, um, is GPT going to eat jobs? Or is it going to make uh, us more efficient and better to be able to create more work, to be able to feed the access to justice gap that is really everyone is talking about? No one can afford lawyers because it's too expensive, because we're too slow and we're too expensive. Can GPT make us faster, better, stronger? to be able to provide self-help or to provide, you know, low, limited services using people with, using lawyers, smart lawyers, using GPT as an exoskeleton. Like Iron Man. <laughs> like Iron Man, exactly. As an exoskeleton to make you faster, better, stronger. And so really that's, uh, I would say that any regulatory agent thinking about banning such things, think of it like a hammer or like an Excel spreadsheet. It's, it's a tool and it might actually uh, give our society more and better things than we have. All today. right. I'm going to, I'm going to follow up on that and be uh, a Debbie Downer, I guess. Um, be a Debbie Downer. Cause as he just was talking about how the way it's like, well, you flip I the way you look at yeah. it. <laughs> well, the, yes, we have more accountants than ever, but just like with the expectation that a tool like this will help those at the bottom who need the help. I don't think that that happened in the accounting industry. I think what happened was that gave them more opportunity to take bigger, you know, much more of the pie for their existing clients and potential, you know, larger clients. Um, and so, how, I, you know, and this is not necessarily a question, but kind of a statement. I would say that, yeah, the, in the, in the, you know, uh, the perfect world that a tool like this would enable access to justice issues. Um, in a world like 
uh, perfect world, uh, allowing non-lawyer-owned uh, law firms in Arizona would mean that people would come in to service the people who need help getting access to justice. And what it's done is it's actually brought in high-end work into the the state instead of the the middle and uh, low end of the legal pay scale. You know, I kind of worry that if we're looking at this as a access to justice issue, I I I would say history is not in our favor of this uh, being an access to justice way to fill that gap. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. As, Hopefully, as an, I'm wrong. As an analogy, though, <laughs> I, well, so let, let's think through our accounting example. Uh, of course, ca- accountants often do taxes. Uh, so think about you know the 1990s roll around, and there's a thing called TurboTax. Uh, that now uh, I've I, I've not used uh, an accountant in my entire professional career. I've used TurboTax, uh, so I spend 150 bucks and then get it out the door. Um, that you know uh, that is access to justice, right, for accounting. Uh, that is self help. That I don't have to hire an accountant anymore. Um, so now through the tools, I'm able to be able to do an unserved market. Uh, I guess you know. So you can imagine on the legal side, uh, a similar thing happening. And maybe we have self help tools that are better, stronger, faster, much like TurboTax is better, stronger, faster than me just looking at the government website and trying to figure out how to fill out my taxes. That's really hard, much like the court system is really hard today. Um, What if a GPT-like system were to go through trusted sources, like, by the way, Fastcase and DocAlarm have? We have 700 million judicial opinions and lawyer-filed documents that you could imagine, uh, what if OpenAI had access to those 700 million uh, legal documents to figure out even better how the law works? And then what if you set that free on access to justice initiatives to be able to say, I, as a pro se litigant, that I'm clogging up the courts right now, maybe I can draft a pretty good brief based on real case law, based on real arguments that are statistically most likely to win for this judge, for this claim, or for this criminal matter. This starts to take it away from these are things that are going to eat my job as a lawyer, and they are instead maybe ways that we could be able to serve that 80% that haven't been served with a way that will not clog up the judicial system because the judges will actually have good arguments rather than the pro se that we have today. Well, Damien, I, I know we could probably continue this conversation and, and we may have to have you come back in, in a little while and and just kind of follow up on, on where we are because it seems like we've just gone leaps and bounds just in the little bit that has been 2023. But I'm going to have you look into the future. So pull out your crystal ball and uh, over the next two to five years, where do you see tools like uh, these large language models, um, whether it's Google BERT or, or OpenAI's resources or, or other products, and I'm sure are right around the corner. How do you see that affecting uh, the legal industry in the near term? I would say that Really, these generative models, there are three ways to think about what they're doing. And those three ways to think about it are largely analogous to what lawyering has been in the past. And so I I anticipate that way number one is where I, as a lawyer, say a bunch of stuff, but I don't provide a citation for that stuff. Uh, We'll call that a bullshitter, right? Uh, That's number one. That's open AI today. They say a bunch of stuff. They're not giving citations for the stuff. So maybe you believe a bullshitter. Maybe you don't believe a bullshitter, but you look at them warily. Right? So that's, that's option number one. Option number two is, we'll call it a searcher. 
So this is somebody like a partner in law firm says, you know, I know there's law for this proposition. It's it's out there somewhere. Go ahead and find this law for the proposition. Uh, and you so write the brief. And so you essentially write the proposition and you search really hard to try to find su support for that, a citation that might be able to support that. So we'll call that a searcher, right? You could imagine a large language model uh, doing that. So a large language model like GPT spits out a legal brief, but no citations. Now I have to be a searcher. So for each one of those sentences, try to find a statute that supports it or try to find a case that supports it. We'll call that a searcher. That's option number two. Option number three is a little more interesting where we'll call it a researcher. That's where I as a researcher find the five or seven cases that are really on point and the statutes that are really on point. And then I extract from those cases the propositions that matter and the things that matter. And then I craft my brief around those cases and those statutes. That's not something that GPT can do, right? I mean, it kind of maybe can, but this is something that humans have done and we'll call that a researcher. So for that, maybe that's the right way to go about it. Maybe that option three, maybe we'll go with option two to be able to have it spew out things and try to call it on as BS uh, or not, either prove or disprove the thing in option two. Or option three, Fastcase acquired a company called Judicata. Judicata assigned a unique identifier to every proposition. This thing is true. And also provided a unique identifier for every citation. That is every case, every statute. And so they created a product to say, uh, hey, why did you, when you said this thing is true, why did you cite this case where your side lost? Why didn't you cite the 12 other cases that said this thing is true where your side won? So once you slap a unique identifier on the thing, um, you're getting close to the researcher. So maybe an AI-like result is to be able to say, I'm going to run a query for breach of contract in the Southern District of New York. Uh, and then maybe all the propositions that are statistically most common get bubbled up. So now you have your most common propositions. And then you, as a uh, as a uh, somebody who is a researcher, says, I like argument one. No, not argument two. But I like three, four, five, not six, but I'll pick seven. So I have a pick list of all my propositions. And then for each of those, I have a pick list of each citation. That is each statute that has that proposition, each case that has a proposition. Um, that has provenance. That you know where it came from because you actually have hard cases. So between option two, which is a searcher, which you're trying to deal, is it bullshit or is it not bullshit? Or option three, you have ground truth from the get-go. Um, to answer your question, Crystal Ball, I think that number three is probably going to win uh, because it's the way that we do research today and you don't have to deal with it, whether it's BS or not BS. Mm. Well, well said. Well said. Yeah. <laughs> I like that well, answer. Well, Damien Rio from Fast Case and with Sally as well. Like I said, we could continue this on forever. So, but uh, we'll, we'll just have to bring you back on. Uh, but thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us. Yes, thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here. I, I listen to every episode and I'm uh, so happy you asked me. Thank awesome. you. Awesome. And of course, thanks to all of you, our audience, for taking the time to listen to the Geek and Review podcast. If you enjoy the show, share it with a colleague. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out to us on social media. I can be found at M on Twitter. And I can be reached at Glambert on Twitter. Damien, and, and, what's your yeah, Twitter Damien, handle? where can you be reached on Twitter? <laughs> I, uh, Damien Real, first name, last name, D-A-M-I-E-N-R-I-E-H-L. Or you can just search Damien Copyright and I come right, right. up. Or if you guys are old school, you can always leave us a voicemail on the Geek and Review hotline at 713-487-7821. And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David DeSicca. Thank you so much, Jerry. All right. Thanks, Marlene and uh, Damien. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Thank you. Bye.